This is an ABC podcast. Attention, compound. Can all women stand by their doors for count? The count is in progress. Oi, newbie. My name is Miss. Women prisoners telling their own stories. Somebody's Daughter Theatre Company is back with a new production. It's not just one mishap that misled us down the slippery slope of misery. Hi, Damien Carrick here. This is The Law Report. You'll meet some of the writers and performers a little later. First, should animal rights groups be allowed to use secretly filmed footage to expose the treatment of animals at farms and in abattoirs? The High Court has rejected a challenge by activists to the New South Wales Surveillance Devices Act. The group, known as Farm Transparency International, argued that laws criminalising secret recordings on private property undermine free speech and gag important conversations around animal cruelty. But a 4-3 majority of the High Court upheld the legislation. Professor Catherine Biber is an expert in surveillance law at the University of Technology, Sydney. Catherine Biber, tell me about the plaintiff. What is Farm Transparency International? Farm Transparency International is an animal welfare charity. They used to have another name. They used to be called Aussie Farms. And they are interested in exposing the abuse and exploitation of animals in commercial settings, in industrial settings and in farm settings. So the use of animals in the production primarily of food, they want people to know how animals are treated and the welfare of animals in the production of food. So the method that they use is, well, their name transparency suggests the method. They want people to see what happens to animals in the production of food. So they trespass on private property. That means they enter that property without the permission of the owner. And using surveillance devices, cameras, sometimes they use drones, they make footage of the treatment of animals in those premises. And they then broadcast that footage on their own website. They have photographs, they have videos, and they also have a kind of map technology. So you can use a map to search for all different kinds of premises that produce food from animals. And then you can see what kind of visual evidence they've captured at all of those different premises. And the kind of footage that they have and the kinds of photos they have are quite graphic. They're, I have to say, very hard to look at, some of them. But they're intended to show people factually what happens to animals in the production of food. Now, Farm Transparency International and I think uh, Christopher James Delforce, who's director of the group, they sought to challenge or test the New South Wales Surveillance Devices Act. What does that act prohibit? So the Surveillance Devices Act broadly tries to strike a balance between, on the one hand, the rights to privacy that we all believe that we have, although we don't entirely have, against, on the other hand, the rights of others to gather information in a covert way, which is what we would broadly call surveillance. So it tries to balance privacy with surveillance. And it says that it's an offence to enter somebody's premises without the permission of the owner and capture imagery or footage or use a surveillance device to capture information there. So it's an offence to do that. It's also an offence to possess material that was gathered in that way, and it's also an offence to publish material that was gathered in that way. 
And Mr. Delforce and Farm Transparency didn't disagree that they had trespassed on private property and had used surveillance devices to make footage. What they argued was that those provisions of the Act interfere with a constitutional right. And that's the implied right to political communication, which is a kind of a free speech kind of idea. Yeah, that's right. So there's nothing in the Australian Constitution that explicitly says that we have a right to political communication. But what the high courts have said over the years in a kind of constitutional magic is that that right is implied into the Constitution because it must be there if we are to live in a functioning democracy. People who want to participate in the kind of broad social discourse that enables a democracy to function must have a right to freedom of political communication. So that has been accepted as an implied constitutional right. And the general principle is that any legislation that's enacted by any government can't interfere with a constitutional right because the constitutional right has priority. So the legal language that's used is that legislation can't burden a constitutional right. And if it does burden a constitutional right, we have to decide whether that burden is justified or unjustified. So this case is actually about a very narrow question. Does the Surveillance Devices Act burden the implied freedom of political communication in a way that is justified or unjustified. And the majority of the High Court, four to three, took the view that the laws can stand and they don't impermissibly or unjustifiably burden this implied right to political communication. Well, what was the thinking of the majority? Well, look, they all broadly accepted that animal welfare is a legitimate matter for political and government debate and dialogue. And in large part, they accepted that the reason that there has been law reform in the past about matters of animal welfare is because the public has discovered information about what happens to animals in different contexts. So there was acceptance that questions of animal welfare are a part of the freedom of political communication. There was also acceptance between the parties that the Surveillance Devices Act does burden the implied freedom of political communication. The question was whether that burden was justified or unjustified. And the majority said that the design of the Surveillance Devices Act and the objectives of the Surveillance Devices Act justified what that act sought to do in a way that didn't interfere with the implied freedom of political communication. And to clarify, the, the footage we're talking about, which which was put forward by the animal activists, it was disturbing and distressing footage of conditions of animals, I, I think in pig and, and, and uh, pig farms and also pig and turkey slaughterhouses, but it did not reveal illegal activity. Would there have been a difference in the outcome of this case if the activity revealed was unlawful? Yeah, look, that's an interesting question, and unfortunately, it's not a question that the High Court was asked to answer. So, look, that's right. Farm Transparency agreed with the New South Wales government that they weren't going to argue about whether the activities that were captured were legal or illegal. They agreed that they were legal. It's an important part of the Farm Transparency agenda to expose the cruelty of legal behaviour towards animals, that all of the things that they were capturing footage of was legal, albeit it was cruel. And one of the judges of the High Court who saw the footage described it as shockingly cruel. So there was no dispute that it was cruel and there was no dispute that it was illegal. 
it would be interesting to test what would happen if the conduct that was captured here was illegal. In the past, farm transparency, when they capture footage of conduct that they think is illegal, they pass it on to enforcement agencies, either the RSPCA or the police, because those are agencies charged with investigating crimes against animals. Unfortunately, there haven't been successful prosecutions as a result of that. So there are still questions about the effectiveness of the enforcement agencies. But the Surveillance Devices Act doesn't even provide a defence if the footage captured is of a crime unless it's serious violence to a person or substantial damage to property or the commission of a serious narcotics offence. So none of those are present in the kind of fact scenario that we have here. So it's difficult to know the answer, but it doesn't look like there is a defence under the Surveillance Devices Act for people who might capture footage that arises from a trespass, but nevertheless captures footage that relates to crimes against animals. I'm not sure what the answer would be, and the High Court didn't need to answer that question. It's very interesting because uh, I, I think um, it was in the court case uh, the animal activists raised equivalents to the Surveillance Devices Act in other jurisdictions, I think in Victoria, the Northern Territory, Western Australia, which have a, a public interest defence. So you can say, sure, I, I broke the law by taking this surreptitious footage, but there's an important public interest here. And and they say that that's a good protection, which is absent from the New South Wales legislation. That's right. Look, the High Court did look at the different analogous kinds of legislation in other states and territories in Australia, and they accepted that the Surveillance Devices Act in New South Wales is different. Um, they didn't have to take a view on whether the Surveillance Devices Act was adequate. It was properly enacted by the government of New South Wales. But ultimately, they were only asked to decide about the New South Wales Act. So to the extent that it was different from other acts, it was accepted that it was different and that it did not provide a public interest defence for anyone who's trespassing in order to capture footage of this kind. Catherine Bybert, this is, it's, it's a, yeah, sure, it's a narrow decision, but it does, uh, I think, underline a, a very important issue about how far activists and maybe media organisations can go to highlight what might or might not be an important issue of, of public debate. Would that be how you would describe the issue at the heart of this case? Yeah, look, you're right, Damien. It was a frustrating decision in some ways because of its narrowness. To be clear, the narrowness was defined by the parties, so they agreed that they were asking the High Court to answer a very narrow question. So it's unfair of us to expect the High Court to have answered a different question. But nevertheless, you're right. I mean, Arising from this case, there are bigger questions. What can activists do to bring attention to animal welfare in commercial and, and, and industrial settings where those settings are in, on private property? You know, if they can't enter property and capture footage that provides factual information, how can people know how food is produced when it's produced from animals? The legislation is part of what some have called a kind of broader suite of ag-gag laws that they kind of gag or stifle dialogue about animal welfare, and that has been identified by animal rights activists as a kind of emerging legislative trend where farmers and commercial producers of food have lobbied governments to enact laws that protect their private property at the expense of exposing to the wider market what 
what goes on in the production of food. So there are important questions about what's left for animal rights activists to do if all of these opportunities are closed off for them. I guess on the other side of it, the question that's not answered is about the rights and responsibilities of the media. Can they publish factual information about animal welfare when that information was gathered covertly and against the law? In this case, Farm Transparency was the media agency because they are their own publisher. But if they were to pass that footage to another media agency, say the ABC, would the ABC be allowed to broadcast that if the ABC was not involved in the trespass and the unlawful gathering of the footage? So there are also big questions about what media agencies can do to broadcast or publish information about animal welfare. A very, very interesting issue on so many levels. Professor Catherine Biber, an expert in in surveillance law based at uh, the law school at uh, University Technology Sydney. Thanks for speaking to The Law Report. My pleasure. Thanks, Damien. You're listening to The Law Report on RN and also available anytime as a podcast from the ABC Listen app. Attention, compound. Can all women stand by their doors for count? The count is in progress. It's been a long road. Sometimes I feel ancient. I'm struggling with my faith. I'm losing my patience. Somebody's Daughter Theatre Company, which works with current and former women prisoners, is about to put on its first production since the start of the COVID pandemic. My dreams, my future, my inspirations, while I kick back to my time, I'll try and be patient. The group often performs inside women's prisons, but this latest work, titled She Swallowed That Lie, will premiere at a theatre venue in Melbourne this month. I went along to one of the rehearsals. I'm sitting in a, um, a music studio in Paran, Melbourne, and I'm having a conversation with uh, Kath and Alex, who are both actors and performers and writers, I think, in, in the latest production by Somebody's Daughter. And I'm also speaking with Karen Harper. She's a director, writer, performer with the group. Uh, Kath, can I start with you? When did you first become involved with Somebody's Daughter Theatre Company? A long time ago, so I think maybe 16 years ago. It was great because it took you outside the prison without leaving the prison. But I didn't have any confidence in myself and nobody had any confidence in me either. There was no encouragement. I was a, you know, I was a lone wolf, (laughs) as we all are, I guess, at the end of our freedom before we go into prison. You built connections and you built... Um, empathy with your fellow inmates. Yeah, you know, the group is our family, basically. It doesn't matter what we've done, who we are. Nobody knows what each other's done unless it's, you know, asked. I didn't have to explain my crimes and, you know, who I've been in the past. And now you're still involved with Somebody's Daughter Theatre Company as a performer and with the writing, but on the outside as well as on the prison. So these these performances, which are for people in the public. Yeah, yeah. Only in the public. You know, I'm not going back into the prison, I don't think, anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) You know. (laughs) So it really is a long time ago that I was in prison. But it's still going. So there's going to be Alex. Look at Alex, the new star. And, um, yeah. If, if we can help one person, hey, Karen, one person only. And, yeah, they've been here for me forever, as far as I'm concerned, post all that drama of my life. 
which was the drugs and the craziness of it all. As much as he comfortable, can you tell me about the offending that led you to spending time in, in jail and the circumstances in your life leading up to that offending? Well, I was, I guess, I, I come from a really working class family. And so, you know, mum was secretaries and girls didn't go to uni and so I wasn't encouraged. I did almost do my HSC, but we were, you know, table tippers at Christmas time. A lot of drama, a lot of drama, a lot of stuff. You know, it wasn't that, a product, it wasn't a productive home life. So I left and I walked straight into the heroin scene of the 90s and I found great comfort in that. And so a little bits of stealing and pawning stuff and and my grand finale was um, armed robbery of a soft target which was a, a servo. I didn't say anything, I didn't hurt anyone but it was a serious crime and that's when I did serious time um, those years ago. So When you say serious time, how many years? Well, two and a half years was the first incident and then I re-offended in the first five years and I went back for another 18 months which was good. It was really good. It's, oh, it was a buffer. It was a buffer between me and death, I think. So what you want to do is to use your wisdom, which you've accumulated through many years, to try and help people who are the next generation of I people? So. I think so, yeah. Like, and for people to understand that, that they are somebody's bloody daughter, brother, mother, whatever. You know, they are just people who something happened back then and, you know, they found respite in drugs or alcohol because there's nothing else to keep them warm at night or whatever, you know? Kath, thanks. Alex, um, if I can talk to you, um, Kath just mentioned um, that uh, she talked about you before as being one of the performers and, and the um, writers. Hey, I'm looking at your left ankle. You're wearing an ankle bracelet, so you, you recently out of jail? Yeah, I got out in May of this year and I'm currently on parole for two years. So one of the conditions is to have a, this bracelet around my ankle 24-7. It can't be removed. It's a GPS tracker. I have a curfew with that, so I have to be home between the hours of 10pm and 6am. Um, got a special little charger that goes with it too, <laughs> to keep it charged. A bit, bit like a mobile phone. Yeah, I just call it a Fitbit if anyone looks. <laughs> Does that impact on your ability to kind of perform and jump around stage or anything like that? Look, it took a little while to get used to being around my ankle, but it's part of me now until it's not. <laughs> you, you're just out of jail in May. Can you tell me about the offending and the circumstances maybe leading up to that offending? Well, um, I've gone through a lot of trauma in my life, a lot of different variety of trauma. Through my second divorce, my husband was extremely abusive. Um, I went into crisis accommodation. With that, I was homeless, both me and my mother. A friend of mine had called me up and said, can you please help me? Someone stole my stuff. I went around there with intent to take his car somewhere to live in, some way to get around. Things got out of hand and that person got hurt. Right. Yep. So you went to jail for what, assault or...? Um, so the original sentence was eight with a six. I appealed it and got five and a half with three and a half. It was aggravated burglary, um, intentional cause injury, prohibited weapon, stolen car. Plus I had uh, a long arm of previous criminal history, so, yeah. <laughs> and I believe you have two young children. Yes, I have a daughter. She's 11 turning 12. My son's 9 turning 10. When did you first become involved with somebody's daughter theatre company? So when I was in prison in, I think it was 2018, I saw a play performed by the women. And in prison, there's always a lot of politics, a lot of separate groups, everybody's divided. But for that moment, even the women that I probably didn't get along with very well that were in the play, I really respected them. 
and I was in awe of the stories and I related to it and I was like, wow, you know what? I want to do this. And I think the hardest crowd and audience to do it is in front of the women, not your friends and family, not the dignitaries that come in, uh, not the VIPs, it's the women. Why? Well, <laughs> they're rough. <laughs> not all of them are rough, but um, sometimes we're so segregated by our differences. And I think we all think we have to put on a face when we're in there. Um, and it's something like that that's gentle and brings us together for that moment. We put all that aside. We all become one. We all become loving and compassionate and kind and think we're not different. We're so much alike. Yeah, we've all got the same hurt and pain. And when you come to that realisation, the person next to you or the person in the next room down no longer becomes somebody you have to be cautious and frightened of, but somebody can maybe turn to for support? I wouldn't say turn to for support, but um, just more kind of compassionate against too. This shit was my life, bad choices, made the wrong men and now I'm in strife. But rock bottom has become a new solid foundation. Have to rebuild from here, now I'm anticipating. So involvement with somebody's daughter theatre company when you're in jail, a lot of it is about the kind of connections you make with your fellow inmates. But is it also about expressing your story and telling it to other people, be be the wider community or, or to your fellow inmates? Well, look, there were some issues that I wanted to tackle in front of the women. There a lot of women were on the fence about, especially about domestic violence and going to the police to ask for help. Now, in prison, if you ever go to the police, you're considered a dog and that's lagging. But when it's domestic violence, it's a different story. And I really wanted to tell my story and get it out there that you shouldn't suffer on your own or you shouldn't end up in a situation where you're using self-defence and ending up 10 years in prison for manslaughter. Go to the police. Go ask for help. Talk to somebody. Don't do it on your own. And this is why a lot of women are in prison, because of domestic violence, because they've had enough and they fight back and they're the ones serving a long sentence because of that. So yeah, I just I wanted to get that out there and to say don't do it. And I think for that moment there wasn't a dry eye in the audience and it made people realise, you know, it's it's okay. And when somebody speaks about it in prison and when it's out there, it's not unspoken about anymore. So yeah. I wanted to give women the power and change perspective to be able to do that. And you made a decision to, to be involved with somebody's daughter theatre company now that you're on the outside. And so rather than talking to your fellow inmates, who you, what are you trying to tell the broader community w- w- with this production and what do you want them to hear? I just would like society to change perspective on prisoners, inmates. Look, I know there are some hefty crimes out there, but they need to understand what led these people to do these crimes. It's not as simple as we chose to commit a crime, we chose to steal, we chose any of this. There are so many different circumstances that led us to this point. Mm. And I just do you- to say before that over 90% of men and women in prison are victims of sexual abuse and domestic violence. That's part of the reason why it all leads up to end up in bars to commit those crimes. And may I ask, are you caring for your children at the moment? No, they live with their father and his wife and their three children and her son. <laughs> Do you have contact? Um, I speak to them regularly, yep, every night, but um, I think that's just a, a big hurdle that I'm going to have to overcome. There's a lot of proving myself to everybody, society, to get that ball rolling again, so, yeah, we'll see what happens. 
Now, we're only using first names for Alex and Kath, but um, I can use a full name. Karen Harper, you're the director with uh, Somebody's Daughter Theatre Company. It's been going for a while now, hasn't it, Somebody's oh, Daughter Theatre Company? We're all only 29, Damien, but it's been going for about 40, 41 years, yeah. yeah it's a long right, time. Right. It started in 1980. What are you trying to achieve? We come together and we meet equally through the creative process. So we start in the circle, we work together, we find what stories need, and they, they do change. What stories are sitting there? What do we want to tell? And it is an evolving, organic process. And so people are very capable of having their own voice. What we have to do is make sure that people have the skills, the voice work, there's a lot of rigour involved in what we do. What you would do with any actor at the Victorian College of the Arts or NIDA or WAP or any of that, we do the training uh, with people. We're all working together. Kath, I just, you know, meeting equally, right? I mean, you, you're just kind of nodding as oh, Karen was yeah. saying that. <laughs> and, and, and just maybe from, from both of you, what does that mean to be met equally to be heard yeah it means a lot it means a lot it means it's good for one's self-esteem yeah. uh, most definitely what good for one's self-esteem and you know uh yeah just to be just to be treated equally that's right to be shown stuff and do things and to be involved with and uh, things that you've never ever done before and never will do would have done i guess would never have done and that's special, special training, isn't it? <laughs> All these colleges of the arts. Is this creative arts or is this therapy or is it? What, what is it? No, no, no therapy. <laughs> no, not therapy. It's not therapy, but I, it gives you a release. It gives you a platform. It gives you strength. It gives you confidence. And it's not just while you're here. It happens once you leave. After doing the play and thinking, oh, my God, I'm capable. I can do things. I can push myself to do something I never thought possible and from then on it was just it just I went to uni I did programs I did education and I can I'm capable I believe in myself and they believe in me and we believe in each other and it just grows from there so it becomes like you know solid ground under your feet from which you can kind of take the next steps yeah you get comfortable with being uncomfortable because <laughs> in drama and you come and you do the silly warm-ups you're like oh my god this is really weird what are they doing you know, but you, you come you come out of yourself, you put that mask off and you all be silly together and you all get vulnerable together and you all go, oh, my God, she's going through this. Even if you don't really like her, you understand her and you go, wow, and you build compassion and it's just, it just, it just becomes something great and bigger than yourself. Mm. And Karen, what, what have you seen? Can you tell me a bit, some of, some of the stories about what you've seen and what you've seen people experience through their involvement with somebody's daughter? Oh, look, where do you start? I mean, I think women are allowing us to be in their space. And so what we do is we, we work in a place in the gymnasium and the art and craft in the prison. And that little world, that little bubble, that transforms. So a lot of the shit from the outside or in the prison can stay out the door just for those hours, for that period of time. I guess it's it's courage. There's huge courage. There's huge rawness and honesty. There's a bucket load of truth. 
I just think it's it's transformative. There's so much. And then, which is the same with the young people we work with, you see that people then want to do something, like Alex was saying. They say, I want to now. I want to go and do education. I want to see what is possible in my life now that I'm my lips are woken up, my body's there, I'm not as frozen. Some of the trauma is back behind, or I've expressed some of it in a way that I feel safe with, and I feel like I'm not alone. If you take out the mess, it becomes understood. We might then grow into the women we could. Karen, Kath and Alex, thank you. Thank you. I've learned a great deal. Thank, thank you very much. Thanks, thank you, Damien. And best luck with the, the latest production of Somebody's Daughter. Thank you. She swallowed that lie. She Swallowed That Lie will be performed at the Chapel Off Chapel venue in Melbourne from the 25th to the 27th of August. We have details of the upcoming performances at the Law Report website. That's the program for this week. Don't forget the Law Report is available anytime as a podcast from the ABC Listen app. A big thanks to producer Christina Kokolia and also to technical producer AJ Bradford. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.